Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our next Normal Leadership Series, featuring Elevate's chairman and CEO, Liam Brown, talking with Carolyn Herzog, EVP and general counsel of Arm Limited, the world's leading semiconductor and IP company. During this episode, Carolyn shares her career journey and her approach to leading a legal department with solid enterprise thinking. So, Carolyn, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We've got a number of, of areas to cover. And uh, you know, I'm particularly interested in talking about leadership in law and all the dimensions of that. So we'll explore a number of areas. Could we start out just by getting to know you a little bit? Could you give a few minutes on the journey as far back to being a you know, young girl back in the day to how you arrived into the job that you have today, as much as you'd like to cover? How did you end up in the role that you have today? Well, it's been an eclectic journey. If you want to go way back, I think when I was five, I told my mom I wanted to be Diana Ross. And she said, well, that's going to be a challenge. <laughs> I studied French and music, violin major. And when I graduated from law school, my father gave a toast to my friends and I and it expressed his disappointment in, in paying for all those violin lessons. With my French, actually ended up working after I graduated from school in the Africa department of the World Bank which I thought was just the best job in the whole world. I was in Washington, D.C. I was surrounded by people from countries all over the world. In fact, it was a minority to be an American working at the World Bank. It was just a block down from the White House. And it was just a a fascinating place. I've always been fortunate. I think with the exception of the time I worked at Hardee's, I had amazing managers. And I still, when I talk about leadership to any audience, my greatest advice is just make sure that you have a boss that encourages you to learn and to grow and develop. And when I worked at the World Bank, I had a few bosses and both of them encouraged me to continue to learn and to grow. One boss was from the Philippines and she was the one that kept talking to me about law school, in fact, and said, when are you going to go to law school? And she put that idea in my mind. And the other boss had just come to America from Senegal and just was a real partner to me. And I was fortunate I got to speak French every day, which I thought was the best thing. And you could wear anything you wanted. And it was a very sort of open and exciting place to be. And, you know, I always sort of joke that, you know, going into compliance later in life, that the compliance program that we had at the World Bank were John Cleese videos. And I still think they're the best videos because... Humor, I think British humor is the only humor that transcends any international environment. And so eventually I decided with a music major and a French major that I needed to go to graduate school and it was going to be business school or law school. And since I really wasn't particularly gifted with numbers and had watched a friend go through statistics class and thought I was never going to pass that, I thought I would go to law school. And really not just knowing whether I would be a traditional lawyer or whether or not I was really going to use it to be the ambassador to France someday. And I went to law school and decided to go back to Wisconsin where I grew up and ended up working for a nonprofit that was funded by the World Bank, in fact, and did programs in international legal reform. And that wasn't all it was cracked up to be. You know, somehow nonprofits (laughs) are either highly functional places or highly dysfunctional places. And this was fascinating, but pretty dysfunctional. And 
Again, my father was really fascinated by how I could make less money after law school than I did before law school. And loved it, you know, in, in many ways. It was a group of fascinating people coming in every day and working on international legal reform projects. And, you know, I would meet judges from Egypt and I loved the people that came in, but didn't really love what I was doing. And one day was working on a international technology transfers and brought in a, a lecturer who worked for a cybersecurity company and almost was jumping up and down with his excitement about how he had the best job in the world working in-house for a cybersecurity company. And they had a job opening and thought I should apply for the job opening. I didn't even know what a license agreement was, but he thought I should apply and it broke all the rules. I didn't know what a license agreement was. It was outside the city. I would have to get a car. It was just all the things that I wouldn't do completely against my character. I probably have to wear suits. And yet I decided I would apply and I got the job somehow. And three years later, the general counsel left, the guy that hired me left, and I ended up being the general counsel of this cybersecurity company and absolutely loved the job. I was addicted. I was hooked. I loved in-house work. And the rest is history. That company ended up being acquired by Symantec. And my love of in-house work, of cybersecurity continued. I worked for Symantec for 16 years in DC, ended up moving to England, lived there for five years. I thought every job was like the best job I'd ever had. I was the head of Europe, Middle East, Africa for Symantec. I traveled. I think it's sometimes it's, it's a little bit of luck and a lot of curiosity that leads your career where you never thought it would go. There are so many things I'd like to explore. One of the things I'd like to touch on, your experience in a nonprofit that has, I imagine, a you know, wonderful purpose, wonderful mission, wonderful people, and yet that doesn't equal a highly functional working environment. How did you know that you weren't in a highly functional... What were the kind of characteristics of that time that you remember or that you might have learned something from? I loved the mission of the nonprofit. I loved the people that worked there. But it was one of those times when I thought, you know, well, I'm working 15 hours a day. I'm writing grants, which I found fascinating. I was writing papers. I was meeting fascinating people. But then, you know, you're cleaning up coffee cups at the same time. And it was, you know, a very sort of almost socialistic environment where you did everything. And if there was no differentiation between the highly intellectual work and it's your turn to clean up the coffee cups and you're getting paid so little, then you think, well, at some point when you're thinking about development of people, you have to think, well, intellectually, I'm growing. And for me, I didn't see the development path. As a leader, you want to help people learn and grow. And I didn't see that as being a functional part of how the organization was run. Did that inform or has that informed your own view about creating differentiation? I ask because I think we as leaders want to create community and belonging. And one of the ways that we do that in ways that we flatten organizations, for example, in my experience in the real world is that actually people do want to see that there is career development and differentiation and a path. Yeah. So did that inform your management and leadership philosophies later in your career? It has. I never worked in a law firm and I never really felt like a law firm was the place for me. So hierarchy is not something that I grasp in terms of people needing to see that they are better than or above or below others. So I always joke that the legal world is one of those few places where people refer to themselves as lawyers and non-lawyers. It's not a reference term that I particularly like. 
But do you think that people need to feel that they are being developed at all times? And so, for instance, one of the things that we do in our department is we have a roles and responsibilities document. So we've created an organizational chart that creates roles and responsibilities. And within that roles and responsibilities, we help people define, well, what is your role within the department? Do you have a vision as to how do you contribute to the organization? How do you contribute to the department? What are the responsibilities that you have? How are you business partnered within the organization? What are your charters? How are you partnering? Are there committees that you participate in? And are you leading within those committees? And do you have a bench strength so that you're developing somebody else so that if you have an opportunity to go and do something else, you're creating a bench strength for somebody else to be developed, to learn what you are doing? And are you also learning to do something that somebody else is doing so that we create this cyclical opportunity? Because growth is not always on a ladder. Growth has to be lateral. And to me, that's always been one of the secrets to my success is that I wasn't always asking to go up. I was asking for lateral development. And I was asking to learn what somebody else was doing. So curiosity to me was always the secret to my success. Having this roles and responsibilities framework, because there are some very specific questions that came to mind as you were explaining that, it seems to me to give you a structure to being able to have this kind of conversation. It almost ensures curiosity because there is a conversation about what other things are you interested in? What other things are you interested in learning about? I really like one of your questions about how are you business partnered? What kinds of answers do you get from your team? How has it actually changed the way they think about their own their role, either with the business or their own role in their own self-development? Well, one of the things that it's changed is that inevitably in a team, you always get an us and them. So particularly with a global team or a team that's looking across the hallway, you always sort of have people that think, well, I'm really busy, but what is that person doing? Or why did that person get promoted and I didn't? And the more that you share across and the more that you communicate, the more people have less doubt about, well, what is that person doing versus me? And also, you know, inevitably, when you invite people in, the, you end up with less of a black hole in terms of what does the legal department do? It's less of, well, you keep me out of jail, thank you very much, or you do contracts, thank you very much. And so the more that we evangelize and talk about what value do we add to the company, one, it makes the team more proud about what we do because they recognize that we add value and people know that we add value. So we talk about it. It's less of a black hole. Thank you very much. You do contracts. Thank you very much. You keep me out of jail. Well, there's a whole plethora of value that we add to the organization. We help protect the company's intellectual property. We are adding this business partnering element to what we do. We're engaged and we're we're looking forward. We're looking around corners. We're enabling the business in so many ways. So the more that we talk about what we do, we create more awareness within our own department and we can talk about what we do. And the more that we talk about what we do, people create this pride about what we do. So you talk to legal members and they'll say, oh, but somebody else will think it's boring what I do. Well, it's not boring at all. In fact, it's fascinating. So we create this legal knowledge sharing. We have monthly sharing around what we do. And the more that we've created this framework to talk about what we do and talk about roles and responsibilities, well, that roles and responsibilities document has filled out. Once upon a time, it was just a little one-liner or a little bullet. And the more that somebody saw what somebody else wrote about what they do, well, they filled out a little bit more about what they do. And it's created a sense of pride and sharing across the team so that when somebody got promoted, there was a greater understanding about why that person got promoted. It wasn't just that they do what they do, but they add value because they train or they engage with their business partner or they really explain a problem versus just 
saying do or do not. And so there's been a great deal more of sharing and engagement and understanding about why that person is the extra special business partner. I think our team has improved over time and understood that the soft skills matter just as much as being a super brilliant lawyer, which of course they all are. The understanding the value that the law department creates is a topic that I'm fascinated by. How do you communicate that value to your C-suite? But with the caveat that one of the things that was clear to me in preparing to meet with you is if I think about something like the work you've done with ethical AI, it seems to me that you've got a lot of experience of actually bringing law in the core. How do you create awareness amongst the C-suite of the law department? And then as a general counsel leader, how have you brought law into the core? I think one is you can't be afraid of feedback, right? So you can't be afraid to ask, how is it going? And so we have done surveys to our organization and said, how are we doing? We partner with our communications team. We do try to ask surveys at the right time and making sure that we're asking within the organization. And we've had external surveys going out to our partners as well and saying, how is the company doing? And some of that feedback comes back in the form of you are difficult to do business with. When it comes back, it's always in the form of legal. And the team says, it's unfair. And one of the best forms of feedback I ever got was from my former general counsel who said, perception is reality, right? Feedback is a gift. It doesn't matter if you disagree with the feedback. The feedback is the feedback. And you have to take that perception and say, what am I going to do with it? When our partners gave us feedback, and it was external partners, the arm was a little bit difficult to do business with. We looked at that and said, well, gosh, it was those engineers, or gosh, it was you know this, that, and the other. And we said, well, it doesn't matter, actually, because we could do something with that as a legal department. So let's take that and let's lead And let's figure out how we can, as a legal department, change the way ARM is perceived. And we also look at that in the C-suite and we say, well, what is it that we could change? People just kind of take the status quo, right? That is just our nature and and we just kind of run with it. We've really taken on, as a legal department, this challenge of changing the status quo. One of the biggest challenges that all legal departments are facing right now is prioritization. So we ask our team to help us change things. We said, you know, you help us change the way that we're working. We're asking you to help us. And it is really hard to change habits. And I have been amazed at some of the things that our team are changing right now. Working with our partners saying, do we really need this form anymore? Actually, none of us like it. So let's just stop using it or let's make it simpler. And attitudes are really changing. The AI ethics work, I don't remember how the question came up. It was two years ago. Would anybody be interested in me starting a working group around AI ethics. And it has boomed. And now the CEO is out talking about it all the time. And it's become a thing around the world. And and we're very, very excited about it. It is an important conversation. I read somewhere that over 90% of smartphones use ARM technology. And if you think about the pervasiveness of AI, as you start to think about the ethical context, you're influencing, developing, and evolving society's views on AI. And I'm sure it was a fascinating set of high quality questions to start thinking about. I'm not sure that you ever fully get to the answer, but I'm sure it's been a very interesting discussion. It has been fascinating. And I think we've really created a framework. And the idea around it is creating this framework can really help. The thing that I love about it is that we are not necessarily the company that makes the most money off of that. It's not something that the company benefits financially from. But we do feel that we are ethically motivated to formulate the discussion and the framework around this and that it helps the partnership and it helps 
the world because if AI is going to be successful, just like the internet is successful, you have to create an ethical framework in order for it to be globally successful. And the world is already benefiting from AI. And so in order to dilute the fragmentation of regulation, in order for there to be a successful reduction of the backlash in terms of the tech backlash as well, we need to promote this dialogue. We need to have governments and society and the technology companies working together to help solve this problem. So it's been extremely rewarding and I'm really proud of the work that we've done. Developing trust, developing understanding in something that is very complicated. One of the things that I smiled at when you talked earlier on about how you work in an engineering company, it's interesting. You've actually, as the law department, brought ethics into engineering. Yes. An engineering problem discourse. That is fascinating. But how did you get the other parts of the organization to be open to talking about questions that are of law or and of ethics? Well, that is actually not very challenging at ARM, I will say. ARM is a very unique company from a cultural perspective. And one of the easiest things for me joining, I was the first chief compliance officer at ARM. And the thing that was probably most challenging in that respect is that I call it the Reese's peanut butter cup analogy and that everybody was saying, well, don't ruin our culture with your ethics. Don't get your chocolate in my peanut butter. But at the same time, one of the first things I did, the company had like 365 policies and they were all very legally. And I said, well, could we get a more sort of values-based review here? Could we reduce all the policies and actually provide a service to the company by making them easy to read and easy to understand. People really liked that. But the thing that was surprising to me is that the engineers are absolutely brilliant. It is a very engineering-driven company, but they read every word of the new code of conduct when I read it. We made it very readable, very simple, more pictures, more values-based. And when I tried to say, well, this is a more sort of judgment-based, we're asking you to use your judgment, they wanted to read every single word and say, you know, what do you mean, use my judgment? It should be very literal. And you miss some words here. And so people are hungry for knowledge at ARM. You talked about changing the status quo, changing metrics to what I call metrics that matter. I'd read that some of the senior executive management at ARM has been with the company for a very long time. Yes. How has having leadership that has been in situ for a long time interacted with you coming in as a new general counsel? And it sounds just in this short conversation, sounds like changing quite a lot. Just as you would expect, there's been certain things where you get, well, this is how it's always been. And then other things where they really encourage you to change it. So our CEO has been with the company for 28 of the 30 years. He's a visionary, like I mentioned, with AI. He absolutely embraces it and absolutely loves it. He's traveled with me. We've been at the same conferences and talking about very similar topics, but from a very different perspective. It's less with sort of the executive management than you'd find with some of the other people in the company. It's the embedded culture. Do not change the culture. People at ARM love the culture. And I think the greatest fear is that it would become too American. One of the things that I had in my favor was that I lived in the UK. And one of the greatest benefits of the job is that I got to travel to England and to Cambridge all the time. I think the team has been more accepting that I kept my team in Cambridge in their leadership positions. I haven't reduced the team there at all. That was one of the greatest fears. And I had to just keep saying it over and over again. I'm not changing that. There's just that fear that when we grew more in the US that we would become more American and, and that fear of losing the heart and soul of Cambridge. When you have a distributed team, especially when you go through change, how do you keep a distributed team 
especially in a time of COVID, focused, aligned? Are there any leadership tools that you use to be able to keep people focused? There's no one tool that you could point to, but I think you have to be authentic, right? It's that magic word. You have to be real. You have to ask people to trust you. And the one thing that I've noticed in COVID in particular is that obviously you're bringing people into your home. You cannot be inauthentic. I'm an extrovert by nature and I respect the introverts on my team because I think if you're not allowing the introverts to listen and then give them that space to tell you what they've heard, they have those magic lightning bolts, right? While you've been so busy talking, have really seen and heard the things that are so important. I couldn't agree more about meeting people sort of where they're at. We've all gotten better. We've started to have some practice at being comfortable with that integration and seeing other people be comfortable with that integration. Two questions. And I'll tell you the second question first. That question will be, leadership in tough times requires dot, dot, dot. And then what I'll ask you for this first question is, are there any books that have influenced your leadership development? I'm a voracious reader, but leadership books put me to sleep. What I'm taking away from that is that you're not a dogmatic person. Yeah. So answer this last question. Leadership in tough times requires dot, dot, dot. It requires courage. It requires adaptation. And it requires absolute prioritization. And it requires empathy. Yeah, you have to be there for people. I think you really can't assume that you have all the answers. You have to be there for people. You have to listen to your smart people. And you have to constantly adapt to the moment. We have pivoted so much at this time. You can't presume that you have all the answers. So I'm constantly listening to what others are doing, what others need, and I'm pivoting. Carolyn, this has been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com. Oh, 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 oh,